The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Jim Myers got a call from Ulan this morning, and I got an email from him. He had his hearing on Tuesday the 19th, and that went as expected. This was just an initial hearing. There is another hearing on the 29th, and we need to be in prayer for that. According to his lawyer, his advocate, about he's got about a 1.5% chance of being granted asylum in Europe. So we'll walk this down the road. God is still capable of making him part of that 1.5%. But we'll walk down the road because as long as he's there, he's safe. And then once that's refused... Finally, and ultimately, then we will make, he'll make an appeal to the United States, and then we'll go down that road. So we'll just see how far we can go. Okay? So keep him in your prayers. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather together to study your word. We thank you for this nation. We thank you for the leaders that we have, especially those who understand establishment principles, those who are believers and who are working with integrity to move this nation in the correct direction. Father, we continue to pray for our president, for his advisors, for leadership both in the military as well as civilian positions, that you would guide and direct them and that the right information would be made available, that they might be able to make wise decisions. And above all, we know that you are the one who watches over us and keeps us secure as a nation, that we may continue to fulfill your plan for us. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study, to see how they relate to our own spiritual life, to challenge us with a greater understanding of who our Lord and Savior is, that we may be encouraged to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 1, forging ahead rapidly. We're getting down to verses 6 and 7 this evening. Now, last time we did a review of the Davidic covenant, because as you go through the first part of this chapter, there's this discussion about the fact that in these last days, God has spoken to us by means of His Son. And this term, Son, is just loaded with nuance related to His Davidic Sonship, because the concept of Sonship is immediately related to the fact that He has been appointed an heir of all things. And then in verse 4, We are reminded that having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And that, of course, relates to his 
uh, Davidic kingship. Then in verse 5, there is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, linked with a quote from Psalm uh, 89 or Second Samuel 7:14, the part of the Davidic covenant indicating that this sonship is the, the Davidic sonship that is primarily in view here. So we took time last week or last session to look at the Davidic covenant, and so I want to review it briefly. The passages are Second Samuel 7, 11 to 14. That's the central text. First Chronicles 17:10 to 14 is also an important text, and Psalm 89 is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. What we see from these passages are four basic points. The first point is that the contract or the covenant, remember that's what a covenant is, it's between party of the first part, party of the second part, and the first party is God, the second party is David. It is a unilateral contract. That means that it is given by God, established by God, and it is based upon God and God alone for its fulfillment. It is not based on some condition of fulfillment in the party of the second part, which is David. So it is a freely granted contract. It promises to David an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal descendant. Four things, an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal descendant. Now, the key word in all of that is the word eternal. That means ongoing, never-ending. So our third point of summary is that the promise indicates a line that ends with an eternal descendant. I mean, either you have an eternal line where you just keep having one son after another and that line goes on for eternity, or it culminates in a descendant that is, in fact, eternal, which is what we have. So the promise indicates a line ending with a divine descendant because he is eternal. But he's also human because he is a descendant, a physical genetic descendant from David. So here we have an indication of somewhat of a cryptic nature, but it's still a clear indication of a divine human ruler. And this shows that God himself will eventually rule mankind as a man in hypostatic union, and that's in the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. The house that's referred to is David's dynasty. And throughout the Mideast at the time of Christ's birth, there was a tremendous fervor for the Messiah. Even in Gentile nations, word about this Jewish expectation has spread throughout the Parthian Empire and into the Roman Empire. And there were people who had a messianic expectation. And they were looking for the, the appearance of the Son of God and the son as the son of David. And this is clearly seen in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. This is part of Gabriel's announcement to Mary about the birth of the Messiah. And it's foundational for understanding who Jesus Christ is. The Davidic covenant is foundational. You have to understand the Davidic covenant or you just don't see how Jesus Christ fits into the overall plan of God. Because phase one is the first advent and accomplishes salvation, uh, the payment for sin. 
But that's only the first part. The resolution of evil, the resolution of God's plan, comes to fulfillment when Jesus returns at the second advent and establishes his kingdom. That's when all the covenants from the Old Testament are fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant all come to fulfillment at that instant when Christ returns at the second coming. Now, this is indicated in several passages related to Jesus' birth. Luke one thirty-two, Gabriel is making the announcement of the birth to a somewhat astonished Mary, I'm sure. And in that announcement, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him what? the throne of his father David. So you can't understand Gabriel's announcement if you don't understand the significance of this, that this is the Davidic king. He is the one upon whom Israel placed all their hopes for their future glory and their destiny. Then later on in that same chapter, remember Luke 1 is a very long chapter, it begins with the announcement to Zechariah, who is serving as the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, that his wife, who is barren, who is Elizabeth, who is a cousin of Mary's, is going to have a baby, and that baby is going to be John the Baptist. He doesn't really believe it, so he is struck uh, dumb, speechless, until the baby is born. And when the baby is born, when John the Baptist is born, suddenly he can speak again, and in his speech, when John the Baptist is born, he says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. See, Zechariah is doctrinally oriented. He knows the Scriptures. He is able, therefore, to interpret what's going on in history during his time. And that's true for any believer at any time, even in the church age when there's no prophecy to be fulfilled. We can discern what the trends are, and we can have an an ability to accurately interpret the trends of history because we can do it from the framework of the Word of God. It gives us that eternal reference point, which allows us then to properly properly understand Uh, what is happening in history, because we can have real objectivity. Well, Zechariah goes on to say in his hymn of praise at the birth of his son, as he spoke, referring to God, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Watch this. To perform the mercy. God is going to perform the mercy promise to our fathers, and to remember his what? His holy covenant. Now, what covenant is that? Verse 73. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. See how significant this is? We've gone through this in Genesis on Tuesday night, going through the Abrahamic covenant. We've gone through the Davidic covenant. And here, Zechariah, in his understanding of doctrine, pulls it all together and shows that this is the Savior from the house of David that is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Hebrews 1.5 introduces us to the importance of the Davidic sonship and the present session of Christ in that role as, as David's son, not as the Davidic king, but as the son and his future inheritance and the role that that has 
for us today. We understand what Jesus is doing today because of what's going on in Psalm chapter 2, which is the background for Hebrews 1.5. Now let's go back and just pick up the context before we get into the next verse. In Hebrews 1.5, we get into the first basic section of, of this, the first point in this five-point sermon. Remember I said in the introduction that Hebrews is like a five-point sermon. And each point concludes with a challenge or exhortation to obedience. And in those exhortations contain warnings to believers about the fact that if we fall apart in our Christian life, there can be devastating circumstances and consequences, not only in time but also in eternity. Now, in Hebrews 1.5, down through the end of the chapter, he's laying the foundation for the rest of the book, and that is that Jesus Christ is the most significant person in history, and he is not just another prophet. He is superior to the angels. And he is superior to the angels because he has inherited this Davidic name. So he starts off in verse 5, connecting these together, a passage from Psalm 2.7, and Second Samuel 7:14, he says, to, "For to which of the angels did he, that is God the Father, ever say?" And then he quotes directly from Psalm 2:7, "You are my son today." And we studied that and saw that the today here is the resurrection of Christ. That's Acts 13:33. Uh, today I declare you my begotten one. That's corrected translation. Today I declare you my begotten one. At the resurrection, there is a declaration in the heavens by God the Father that this is the begotten Son. Now, he's not begotten then. He was begotten eternally. He is the eternal Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. But this is a declaration related to his fulfillment of, his, of the plan for salvation in hypostatic union, which qualifies him now to uh, be promoted to heaven. You are my son today, I declare you my begotten one. And again it says, and that phrase again it says is simply saying, okay, now we're going to go to the second verse to support this. Second Samuel 7.14, which is a quote from Second Samuel 7.14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now just as... Well, we'll come back and look at that in a minute. Hebrews 1.5, therefore, lays this foundation that connects Psalm 2.7 with 2 Samuel 7.14. Now, let's take a minute and review what 2 Samuel 2, I mean, what Psalm 2.7 says. And so I have Psalm 2.7 and 8 up on the board. Three things are important here. Three things are important. Try to focus on this. We've been in Psalm 2 a lot, so this ought to be good review. Each time I try to tweak it a little bit to make sure you understand it a little more. It starts off where the son is speaking. He says, I will declare the decree. Now, what decree is he declaring? This is not God's eternal decree. You know, we've all studied the doctrine of divine decrees. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a specific decree that God is right. And the contents of that decree are laid out in verse 7 and verse 8 of Psalm 2. The first part of that decree is that the Lord has said to me, quote, You are my son. Today I, will de- I have declared you my begotten one. I have declared you my begotten one. That's the first part of the decree is this declaration that 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is my begotten one which occurred at the resurrection. Then the second part of the decree is given in the first part of Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So the first part of the decree is this elevation and recognition that occurred at the ascension. The second part of the decree is ask, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the idea of inheritance we study is possession, as it indicates in the, in the parallel, the second strophe. And the ends of the earth for your possession. This is what you're going to own. Now, when you own a piece of property, what is, what's the piece of paper called? It's called a deed, a title deed. So this decree is focusing on his qualifications in verse 7 and the content of the title deed, which is the ends of the earth, the whole earth. So the decree is, in essence, a summary of this title deed that God is giving the Son for the ownership of planet earth. Now, who runs things on planet earth right now? We all know this basic Satanology. It's Satan. He's the prince and the power of the earth. So Jesus Christ is going to have to take ownership of the earth at some future date. We looked at Revelation chapter 5 and saw that this decree is essentially the scroll that the Lamb takes and begins to open, which are the seven seals of judgment, the seventh seal are the trumpet judgments, and the seven trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. So those seven seals are the judgments that come about during the tribulation period as the Lamb of God takes ownership of, of the planet. And that culminates when he defeats the kings of the earth at the Battle of Armageddon, and that's the reference of Psalm 2, 9. You shall shatter them with a rod of iron. Now, we studied that same thing in reference to believers in Revelation chapter 2 this last Sunday morning because the reign of Christ in the millennium is characterized as a rod of iron rain. Even though it's perfect environment, that means that the climate's going to be great. It's not going to be humid. It's not going to be cold. None of those bad things. No ice storms, no floods, none of that. And even though there's going to be perfect government and a recognition of establishment principles so that no nations are going to be legitimizing homosexual perverted marriage and any of those other things that are going on today, and there will be perfect government, perfect administration, perfect judicial system, perfect legislation, perfect everything. One thing's not going to be perfect. All the little babies that get born during the millennial kingdom are going to have sin natures. And sin natures have to be controlled. And so there will be a rule of iron because you still have to control the total depravity of the human race. And that's one of the lessons in the millennial kingdom is it's not environment. It's not the education system. It's not the legislation. It's not the fact that the Democrats, I know this is going to really upset some of you. It's not the fact that Democrats are in office. It's not the fact that Republicans are in office. It's not the fact that you've got a monarchy or you have a communist government. It's none of that. The, the problem with man is every human being has a sin nature. That's the problem. It's not the environment. We all want to blame the environment for something, and that's been true ever since the Garden of Eden. So the 
the whole period of the millennial kingdom is, is characterized in Revelation 2 as a rod of iron uh, government. But it begins when, he, when Jesus Christ returns to crush the opponents, the kings of the nations, at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, that gives us our context. This is a written decree that gives ownership to the Lord Jesus Christ for planet Earth, and he takes ownership when? Second coming. Did he take ownership at the first coming? No. Did he inaugurate the kingdom at the first coming? No. What happened at the first coming? He offered the kingdom, but it was rejected, so it was postponed. Now, this is foundational for understanding what's going on here. Now, in verse 6, we read... But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So angels, the the basic point here to get the summary of the importance of the verse is what the writer is saying is since angels are going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, that means the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to angels. Don't lose sight of that. That's where his argument is going. But there's some interesting things that are going on here because of this particular quote. Hebrews 1.6 quotes from the Old Testament a, uh, this verse, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now, there's some disagreement as to just how to understand this and how to interpret it. And the first major issue has to do with how you understand this little word, Again, this little word. See, it's always the little words that are important in understanding a passage. I just love passages. I have so much fun when I come to a passage like this because it has certain interpretive problems, and you've got to figure out what these things mean and what their significance is. And you don't just play a guessing game, and you don't just come along as a pastor or theologian and say, well, I like this option best, which is what a lot of guys do. This is what makes sense to me good postmodern response. You know, you have to go in and you have to do a lot of investigation. Now, what we see, what we've seen is in verse 5, you have two citations from the Old Testament. And basically what the writer is saying, okay, he says this here, and again he says this here. So the again in that verse is just adding another quotation to the first quotation. Got it? He's just saying, he said this here, and again he says this over here. So, It's just adding one thing to what he's already said. Now, when we come to verse 6, is he using again in the same way? In other words, is 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 it saying, and when he again says. So he doesn't have the verb says there, but it would be understood from the context, ellipsized. That's where it's left out, but it's still understood from the context. Is he saying, but when he says again and brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Is he just adding a third quote to the list? Or does the word again modify the verb? Oh, and that would mean, but when he brings again the firstborn into the world. That would be what? Second advent. If you take it the other way, when he, and he again brings, and he brings the firstborn into the world, he again says... Let the angels of God worship him. The idea there would be that it's first advent when all the angels sang at the birth of the Lord. So what is it, first coming or second coming? But there are reasons to analyze this. You don't just make 
educated guess, guesses at this. So here are the options. Does again indicate first advent or second advent? Does it connect to an ellipsized or an assumed verb to say, as in the use in verse 5, or is it connected to the verb to bring, which would then indicate when he again comes? So here are the two options at the bottom of the slide. Is it, and it again says, or is it, but when he again comes? In other words, we're talking first advent or second advent. There's a big difference. It's going to open up the interpretation of the whole passage. So how do we resolve this? Well, there's several different things that you have to investigate when you go through this. First of all, we should notice that in verse 5, again is used, or the Greek word actually is the word pollen, P-A-L-I-N, but again is used as an introductory formula. But in the Greek of verse 6, it is linked with a conjunction and a temporal particle. The temporal particle is hotan, H-O-T-A-N, which means at that time, whenever, or when, but at that time, and it has, I don't have a slide on this, but it has the opening conjunction, but. Now, in Greek, you have a strong adversative conjunction, A-L-L-A, which is clearly translated but, and shows contrast. You have another conjunction, de, spelled D-E, and this can indicate ongoing development and, or it can indicate a contrast as in but. So now the translator has to make a decision. Is he saying and in a continuation of the same thought, or is he offering a new or an additional uh, thought? Is there some sort of contrast going on here? But you can tell, the way you figure that out is you just look at how the author tends to use the word. So if you look down at verse 13, verse 13 says, But to which of the angels has he ever said? And that word translated, but there, is our Greek word, de, the same word we have in verse uh, verse 6. So that shows that the writer has a preference of using that particle to refer to a contrast and not a continuation. So you have to analyze the author's writing style. The second thing that reinforces this is the verb itself. And that is the verb brings. And this is the aorist active subjunctive mood of the Greek verb aceago. Aceago, which means to bring or to lead something in or to lead something into something else, to bring it from one place to another. So he's bringing the firstborn from one place into the world. Now, the, const- the aorist is a constative aorist, which simply views the action as a whole. It doesn't make a distinction as to its beginning, its end, its progress or result, or the manner of the action. It's just simply a summary of a past action. But the subjunctive mood is very important to understand this because the subjunctive mood is used in clauses like this to indicate a future action. See, if it was first advent, it would be past action. 
But this is a subjunctive mood, so that indicates first action. So the de indicates contrast as is the stylistic preference of the author. The aorist subjunctive in, in a temporal clause indicates a future event. And then third, we have the word uh, world here. He's going to bring the firstborn into into the world. And the Greek word for world is oikodomeo. Oikodomeo. O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E-O. Oikodomeo. That's related to the word for house, oikos, and, and dwelling. And it has to do with looking at the world as a place that is inhabited. Now, oikodomeo is used again in chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come. Same word. Now, world to come. Come on, basic grammar, fifth grade. World to come, past or present, or future. Future. Okay, so we've got future tense in terms of, of an error subjunctive, and we have future tense with oikotomeo. And then a fourth reason to look at this has to do with the quote itself. Now, this is where it really gets interesting. Sometimes I just, it's like doing good investigation. It's just a lot of fun. The quote comes out of the Old Testament. And it corresponds to a verse that is not found in the Hebrew Masoretic text. Now, the Masoretic text is the uh, canon of the Hebrew Testament that's the basis for our translations for the Old Testament. But it is found in Deuteronomy 32.43 in the Septuagint. It's just added at the beginning of the verse. just pops out of nowhere. There's no indication this is there. There's, there's two clauses in that verse that aren't in the Masoretic text. They're, just, poof, they're there in the Septuagint. But remember, the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint all the time. He's not quoting Masoretic text. This, the, the, the Bible that the, everybody used, all the uh, apostles used, was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32:43, which is the Song of Moses, and it's prophetic. And it's one of the most frequently quoted sections and familiar passages in, of the Old Testament in the New Testament. If you were a Jew, you understood Deuteronomy 32, that it was a challenge to Israel to obey God otherwise, but there's a, there's a prophetic element there that they would fall by the wayside, but eventually they would return to God and God would restore them. Now the question is, if you look at your Bible, I would bet, if I had you raise your hands, that when you look at that little letter A or B or whatever it is at the end of the quote, and you look in your that column in the middle of your Bible for the cross-reference, it says Psalm 97.7. I bet most of them say that. And you're probably scratching your head and saying, well, where did Deuteronomy 32.43 comes from? And what was interesting as I went through this is when I looked at, a, at commentaries that were written by Amills. Now, what's an Amill, an amillennialist? He doesn't believe there's a literal millennium. So that means that he believes Jesus is going to come back, but he's not coming back to establish the kingdom because we're already in the kingdom. You knew that. You're in the kingdom. You knew that when you got up this morning, right? You saw it on the news with all the crime. No. 
That's right. We're not in the millennium. But Amels consistently go to Deuteronomy 32.43 as the basis because the context of Deuteronomy 32, in their view, isn't so clearly second coming and millennial. But Psalm 97 is an enthronement psalm. Most of the psalms in the 90s are enthronement psalms. These are psalms praising and prophesying about the future enthronement of the Davidic king, the Messiah, on the throne of Israel, which indicates what kind of a kingdom, a literal kingdom or a spiritual kingdom? A literal kingdom. So they don't want to go to Psalm 97, so they go to Psalm 32:43, and they may be right, but it's really interesting what happens. So we have to make this decision. Is this from Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 97? Now, Deuteronomy 32:43 is the first line in the Greek. Now, you that doesn't mean anything to you, but I've highlighted the first word. The second line is, is the transliteration of the phrase as it's found in Hebrews 1.5. Now, notice, they're identical. Same form of the verb. The verb ends with O-S-A-N, osan. In both of those verbs, same words, same word order, except in Hebrews it's not sons of God, it's angels. But who are the sons of God in the Old Testament? They're angels. So they substitute, he substitutes angelos for huioi, the sons of God, the beneha Elohim, when it's brought over into Hebrews 1.5. But when you look at Psalm 97, notice the verb here. It doesn't have the same ending. It's an A-T-E ending, indicating an aorist imperative. So it's a different ending. So it's not a direct quote. So Hebrews 1.5 looks on the surface like it's a direct quote out of the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32.43. So hold your place here, and let's go back to Deuteronomy 32 for just a minute. So you just can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. And all the Jews that are reading Hebrews are thoroughly conversant in Deuteronomy 32. And I'm not going to embarrass anybody by asking for a show of hands of how many of you have read Deuteronomy in your morning devotions lately. I know there's at least one. Deuteronomy 32. Now this is a crucial passage in the Old Testament. In verse 1, Moses calls upon the heavens and the earth as witnesses to this contract that God's made between, between himself and Israel and the outworking of the provisions. And he's not just talking about heavens and the earth. He's not talking about the immaterial bodies in space. He's talking about the angels and all mankind, the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. These are the witnesses. In fact, Deuteronomy 32 is written according to what is called in the Hebrew a reeve format. Just spell that R-I-V. A reeve format. And that is basically... A, uh, a prosecutor's document. It is a lawsuit against Israel. And Moses is presenting this law, this case against Israel based on a contract dispute between God and Israel. That's the basic thing that's going on here. 
and he is warning Israel that if they don't fulfill the conditions of the Mosaic law, then there's something called the five cycles of discipline, and they're going to be kicked out of the land and not enjoy the blessings, but eventually they'll return, and God will defeat all of their enemies and bring them back into the land. And so if we skip down a little bit, I'm not going to deal with the whole chapter, but look at. let's just go to about verse... Verse 36, For the Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. That's the restoration at the end of a lengthy period of apostasy where they're out of the land. When He sees that their power is gone, there's no one remaining bond or free. He will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Where are these gods that Israel's been chasing after all these years? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices, describes the false gods. And then in verse 39, He says, Now see that I, even I am He. And there is no God beside me. He's saying to Israel, recognize finally that I am the only God. And then in verse 41, he says, if I whet my glittering sword. Now, what is coming out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation? A sword. Whet whet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to my enemies. My enemies are the enemies of Israel. And repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. What does that remind you of? What event do you think is being described in those verses? The blood, the gore, the destruction of the kings, the leaders of the earth. That's the Battle of Armageddon. This is the same event that is referred to in, by the rod of iron terminology in Psalm 2, when the kings of the earth have gathered together and conspired against the Lord, and he, uh, the Messiah comes, the Son comes, and destroys them. And then we come to verse 43 that says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, before you get that phrase, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, in the... In the Septuagint, it says, Worship Him, all you angels. And then rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Now, this seems to make sense to me. Why? Because at the very beginning of the, ch- of the chapter, it says, Give ear, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Who are the witnesses in this courtroom? It's the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. So now when we get to the end, and you have uh, a have this reaching its culmination, he says, Worship him, angels, and rejoice, O Gentiles. So it seems to fit. I don't know what the other textual evidence is. It's possible. I'm not going to get into that. But the point I want to make here, though, is that Deuteronomy 32, 43, is talking about an event that occurs when? First coming or second coming? Second coming. Okay, so if you're an amillennialist and you're ba- you think you can go to Deuteronomy 32 to get support for your view that it's first coming, you can't. This is second coming terminology. Now turn with me to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, as I said earlier, is an enthronement psalm. And the one who is being enthroned, who is being put on the throne of David, is the Davidic son, the Messiah. And so this is a psalm that is written in praise of that future event. And it's written as if it has already occurred, when of course it hasn't. Begins the Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice. So this is at what time? 
when, when Messiah has come, when he's established his rule. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Now, the islands were always the Gentile nations. Let the islands be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Verse 3, a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. Hmm, what does that image remind you of? Second coming, destruction of the unbelievers and the armies of the Antichrist. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. Verse 5, the mountains melt like wax at the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. And verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Verse 7, let all be put to shame who serve carved images. Didn't we just get through dealing with a problem of idolatry in Deuteronomy 32 leading up to verse 43? So you see the similarities. Uh, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. There's a command there. Now, the word for gods in the Hebrew is Elohim. Now, Elohim is uh, just a generic term for God or gods, and it should be interpreted as supernatural powers, not gods per se or deities, but supernatural powers, which we would refer to as angels. And that's how the Septuagint translates Psalm 97.7, translates it into Greek as worship him all you Angels. So whether the background to Hebrews 1.6 is Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 97, it could be either one. The writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can pick up either one. Both of these phrases referred from the Old Testament refer in their original context to first coming or second coming. Second coming. So we have uh, several reasons now why this refers to second coming. The use of the contrastive de at the beginning indicates uh, uh, contrast. The era subjunctive indicates future tense. The oikoidemeo is used in context to refer uh, to uh, the fu a future event. And then the quotation from either Deuteronomy 32:43 or Psalm uh, 97.7 can also refer to a future event. So what's the context then, now that we're back, what's the context of, of Hebrews 1.6? But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he, he says, and it should be understood, but when he brings again the firstborn into the world, he says... So this is second coming. This isn't talking about the angels worshiping Jesus at his, uh, at, at his birth. It's talking about the angels worshiping him as the returning son of David to establish the kingdom at the second advent. So this is the same kind of thing that we see throughout Scripture, that the angels recognize Christ's authority and that his authority is greater than theirs. A couple of other verses that indicate that. John 5:23, All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. The same honor is due both the Son and the Father. So that the angels worship them both because they are both undiminished deity. 
And then another reference would be Revelation 5, verse 6 and following, where we, we have seen the worship of Christ because He is worthy to open the scroll and because of what He did on the cross. All right, now let's get into this verse itself. He, again, he brings again the firstborn into the world. And that word for firstborn is the Greek word prototakos. Prototakos, meaning firstborn, and it's used of Jesus in several passages, Matthew 1.25, Luke 2.7, Hebrews 11.28, Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.15 and 18, Hebrews 1.6, Revelation 1.5. So this is a title that refers to Jesus. Now, we have a little difficulty understanding this because in our thinking, Firstborn means first in time, as if there's a, a temporal progression. He's, he was the first one born, and the idea of birth indicates that there was a time when Jesus wasn't. Well, that was called Arianism, and it was a heresy that was condemned at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, there was no time when Jesus was not. He always has been. Prototakos doesn't mean simply first in birth order, but it has to do with the special status of the firstborn. This is the second meaning on this slide. It's not birth order, the first meaning, but the second meaning, it pertains to having a special status associated with being the firstborn. See, you could actually be the secondborn, but because of various reasons, you could supplant the firstborn in time and have the double blessing go to you. And this term is used in that way of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's used of him as the firstborn of a new humanity in terms of resurrection, but it's used in an absolute sense of Jesus Christ as firstborn, or a better word for you to use is the preeminent one. The preeminent one. That's the idea here, that he is the preeminent one. Now, we see this applied to Jesus in, in a way that relates to this in, in five basic passages. The other passages listed refer to him as firstborn in terms of resurrection, like in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, first point, just to summarize. The ter- to us, the term firstborn indicates order of birth or origin, but in the Bible, this term often relates to priority or rank rather than chronological order. Who's more significant? Him, he's the firstborn. He may not be the firstborn in time, but he is the preeminent one. It's used that way in several passages related to Jesus. For example, this is a second point, five passages. Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It refers to his preeminence in relationship to his work on the cross. Then we have Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Christ's preeminence. He is the firstborn. He is above all creation. Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There it's resurrection, like the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15.20. And Revelation 1.5 also refers to him as the firstborn from the dead. That's also first fruits or resurrection. So Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.15, and Hebrews 1.6 are the ones that use this in an absolute sense. 
Now, the third point has to do with the Hebrew background. In the Jewish culture, they practice a law of primogenitor. You all remember what that is. Law of primogenitor means the first, one, the first male child gets the double blessing of the inheritance. He's the one that, every, that the line goes through. But in Jewish culture, the oldest son could fall out of favor with the father and be replaced by a younger brother so that the younger brother becomes the firstborn, even though he's not the first one born in chronological order. And we see this principle throughout the Old Testament, and that is the principle of the younger, I mean, the, excuse me, I got this backwards, the older serving the younger, the older serving the younger. Ishmael served Isaac, Esau served Jacob, Reuben served Joseph, Manasseh served Ephraim. Aaron served Moses. In each of these cases, the older serves the younger. The Gentiles serve Israel, Exodus 4.22. Adonijah, older, serves Solomon the younger, 1 Kings 1.5 and following. Now, the fifth point is when the younger son was elevated, he's now known as the firstborn. That's his title, his rank. He's the firstborn. So the term of firstborn, point six, relates absolutely to Christ in his deity as the preeminent one, as the eternal son. And second, it relates to his humanity in resurrection. So it's applied to him two ways, absolutely in terms of his deity and relatively in terms of his humanity in his resurrection. Acts 13.33, Psalm 2.7. So Christ is, in conclusion, Christ is the firstborn because he deserves the preferential share in honor and inheritance. He gets the double blessing. And that's why he's elevated to the right hand of God the Father. So, the significance of the term here is related to his inheritance rights over the angels. That fits the context. Hebrews 1.4 says, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So verse 6 reads, But when he again brings, when he, God the Father, brings again, second coming, the firstborn, that is the preeminent one, who gets the inheritance into the world. That's when he receives his inheritance, is at the second coming. At that time, he says, God the Father, let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. So the indication is that the Son is superior to the angels. And then they are to worship him. And the word for worship is the Greek verb proskuneo. I've got the aorist active imperative form there. It's proskuneo, P-R-O-S-K-U-N-E-O, proskuneo. And it means to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. It means to bow down to a king. Literally, proskuneo means to bend the knee, to bow down in submission, to subordinate your will to someone else's will. It's not raising your hands. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not singing praise choruses. It is a mental attitude of subordination 
that you are putting yourself under the authority of someone who is higher. That's what worship is. It means to put yourself in an obedient position to the Lord. And the highest form of worship, of course, is studying the the Word, where you're saying, I'm going to listen to the Word and let God tell me how to think. And I'm going to change the way I think so that I can bring my thinking into conformity with that of God the Father. So Jesus Christ is going to be brought, uh, brought into the inhabited world, and at that time, uh, God the Father says, let all the angels of God bow down in subordinate, subordination to him. Okay, verse 7. And of the angels, he says, this is an additional statement, of the angels, he said, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And in this particular verse, we have a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. So this is our fourth Old Testament quotation in Hebrews, Hebrews 1. Now, Psalm 104.4 states, Who makes his angel spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. That's the New King James translation. The Septuagint reads, Who makes his angels spirits, and his servants, our ministers, flames of fire. He makes one thing something else. Masoretic text says, who makes his angels winds. So you see that same idea, wind, spirit, both come from the same Hebrew root, ruach. And his servants devouring flames. So it indicates something about the character of angels. They're spirit beings, and they look like flames or light. But the key word here is the word makes. What does that indicate? That indicates the angels are creatures. But Jesus Christ isn't a creature. He's eternal. So the writer is quoting this verse because it indicates angels are creatures, and creatures are always subordinate to the Creator. Psalm 104.1 was a well-known hymn sung in the early church. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Notice the idea of being the creator. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, and who makes his... uh, angels, spirits, and ministers of flame of fire. So when we get to Hebrews 1.7, the emphasis on the angels as creatures. And then this will be contrasted to the Son in verse 8, who is seen as the Davidic king who sits on the righteous throne. And there we have two more quotes from Psalm 45 and from Isaiah 61. And we will come back and address those uh, next time next Thursday night. Remember Tuesday night? No Bible class. Don't show up. You'll think you got left behind. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is at the helm of the universe. He's been elevated in authority over the angels, and we are united with him. What a tremendous blessing and privilege we have to be part, to be united to our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with our understanding of our Lord and his magnificent destiny in the future and our role to come and rule and reign with him. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.